everyone and welcome back to Pandemic Perspectives. So we are in the sixth episode today, but before we talk about what's going to happen, Bela, can you give us a short wrap up of what happened last time? Yes. So Nicola has talked to Christine Stier, who is a medical expert and bariatric surgeon from Germany, about the health sector during the pandemic. And one very interesting and I think also very important takeaway is the need to treat health more like a human right and less like an economic good. And the pandemic has shown the need to reevaluate the importance of the public health sector and the priority that it should have in our current society. Yeah, that was definitely super interesting. And I am excited to hear from our episode today because Bela, I actually know that you are interviewed oh, someone really? from the field. Um, so you interviewed Lilith Raza. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what this episode is going to be about? Yes. So Lilith Raza is an activist and advocate for the rights of LGBT refugees in Germany. And she works for Queer Refugees Deutschland, which means Queer Refugees Germany. And together we talked about the specific role of queer refugees during the COVID-19 pandemic and the effects that the lockdown had on the well-being of queer refugees be it isolation, be it loneliness, be it the lack of community. There was many things that we talked about. And yeah, I hope you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, looking forward and have fun with this episode. And welcome to this part of the podcast of our research group uh, investigating the corona crisis. My name is Bela and today I'm talking to Lilith. And before we get started, I wanted to ask you, Lilith, if you can introduce yourself. So what are your pronouns and what do you work? How would you describe the things you do? Thank you, Bela. So my name is Lilith Rasa and my pronouns are she, her. So I'm working for the German-wide project called Queer Refugees Deutschland. And we are responsible for a couple of tasks in overall uh, Germany. We are located in Cologne, but we uh, have different tasks which uh, are carried out in other federal states as well. So our first task is counseling. Uh, we are the first contact of many LGBTIQ refugees are either in Germany or are coming to Germany. And that usually happens through three mediums. One is WhatsApp number, one is email, and then telephone. Then we are also responsible for sensitization workshops for the people working with LGBTIQ refugees, made the, the Federal Agency of Migrants and uh, Refugees in Germany, uh, which is BAMF, or people who are working in different asylum centers in different federal states. Then we produce some of the material for LGBTIQ refugees for themselves in nine different languages, including German. And then we are also doing a lot of media work and there is a lot of lobbying. And what else are we doing? Yes, and then we have a group of LGBTIQ refugees who are activists. Either they were already activists in their home countries 
or they have become activists for the rights of LGBTIQ persons in Germany. So yeah, that's a group of like 30 people, almost 15 to 20 of them are always active doing some things. Others sometimes take break and that is also very necessary to take break. So yeah, that's the summary of the projects that we are doing within the project. Yeah, that's it. Okay, sounds great. And maybe this is like a very basic question to ask, but maybe for some of the listeners who are not so familiar with the topic of queer refugees, why is it important to talk and advocate for queer refugees in Germany or in Europe in general? So LGBTIQ people who are coming outside of Europe, especially in most of the countries, uh, being an LGBTIQ person is very dangerous. Uh, almost 70 countries of the world punish LGBTIQ people for just being LGBTIQ. And in 11 of those countries, even one can be punished to death if they are caught or charged of homosexual behavior. So that is one thing why people flee and why they are LGBTIQ refugees. And then we have some EU directives and some of the court decisions of the European Court of uh, Justice as well as the EU court that uh, LGBTIQ people are a recognized group and they are a vulnerable group when it comes to being a refugee group. So that's why it's very important uh, that the LGBTIQ people should be treated as an entity, as a group that are coming to Europe and also to Germany to seek a refuge, to seek security, to seek a better uh, life opportunity. Yeah, that's that's the main reason. And then there is also this uh, human uh, reason that it's not just people fleeing from war. It's not just people fleeing from economic devastations or people fleeing from uh, different other kinds of adversities that are happening to them. Uh, there are also people who are punished for just being themselves. So why not help them? It's not a political idea. It's not a religious belief. It is someone who is born this way, as Lady Gaga also says. <laughs> yes, you're born this way. So if somebody is born this way and they're punished for that, they uh, need our solidarity, our help, our security, I would say. But to be here, that's it. And after that, they can do things on their own. They're human beings like us. Yeah. And what are currently the biggest challenges for queer refugees living in Germany? Oh, there are many. The biggest one that has been shaking us since last year, March, is the COVID-19 pandemic. But there were also many challenges before that. For example, people getting negative decisions uh, because they are not believed to be LGBTIQ people or the decision makers believe that they are LGBTIQ, but they can live back in their country. Or they are just being given a negative decision on no concrete founding. Like there is no reasoning behind it. That was the biggest one. That's why so many people contact us. Like I have got a negative decision, what should I do? Mm. Of course, then we counsel them how to tackle with those issues. But the other issue, which is not the justice issue or the legal issue, it's more about social issue, 
it's learning the language, uh, getting to know the local communities, going out, socialization, being with other LGBTIQ refugees and asylum seekers and migrants who do not consider themselves as German or maybe they are German born, but they are different than the majority white population. So all those things, and there used to be a lot of, uh, at least in Cologne, a lot of points where people could meet and greet each other and socialize with each other, have that feeling of friendship, sisterhood. I call it queerhood as well. <laughs> all queer people coming together. And all of a sudden that just vanished like this mm-hmm. within seconds. And that is when we saw that how hard it is um, especially for LGBTIQ refugees and asylum seekers to be in asylum centers because now it was social isolation in terms of social isolation, like literal meanings of social isolation were experienced by LGBTIQ refugees, not even refugees. I'm not a refugee. Even I was uh, unable to go anywhere, do anything, uh, talk to anyone. And that was... uh, psychological trauma because when we are busy with people and things in our day-to-day lives we do not visit our traumas and when you are left alone with yourself and you do not have any human contact in terms of social workers in the refugee camps they were all in home offices all of a sudden all social workers were in home offices I was like oh wow okay good (laughs) Other than security guard and some of the staff from the canteens, there were many, very few people who were present in the refugee centers. And you visit your traumas. Then uh, we have done a study with the help of other organizations. How was it in terms of social isolation, re-traumatization? than violence against LGBTIQ asylum seekers within the refugee camps and uh, people who tried to take their lives. And we are still uh, collecting the data. And so far, I can only tell you that uh, the number of attacks and the number of re-traumatization as well as the number of people who tried to commit suicide increased two to three times, at least. Wow. Up until now. So mm-hmm. it was uh, quite problematic and nobody knew how to deal with it because, for example, if you are in a household where you have domestic violence uh, against children or maybe against women, uh, against spouses as well, it's not just women who face uh, domestic violence. Uh, any of the spouse can face that, even among same-sex houses there was violence you have internet access to you but you can't access anyone because you do not have a safe space to talk about those issues so the necessity of having a safe space was crystal clear for the very first time among all social working areas people dealing with child molestation, all of a sudden now they know that the children are not going to school anymore. They would have talked to a teacher, oh, my ex-epsilon, somebody touched me there or there. 
because you know ch- children can talk to their teachers about those things now they are not going to school and there was an uproar about those things because there were some of the students who were getting counseling about this thing there was violence against women against men uh, against children against senior citizens and people could come to the center and talk about those issues without any fear same applies to the queer refugees they could go to social workers they could come to the independent organization who give them like us those counseling uh, the first counseling or maybe detailed counseling depending on their situation they couldn't go anywhere and on top they do not have wifi data how much data connection does one call consumes uh, <laughs> we know that you can't have that and refugees are not allowed to work unless their case has been accepted yeah then there is an issue there is no self space anymore you were living either with two people three people in one room there was no privacy uh, even before pandemic and now all of a sudden the entire privacy is vanished and uh, that that was one of the biggest lessons learned that we need safe spaces to communicate with people who are vulnerable mm. regardless of their status but because queer refugees are also under the stress of getting a positive or a negative reaction from the agency of refugees and migration so for that even they need to go somewhere to talk about that case in detail and now they can't do that so what bump did in the beginning they halt all the cases yeah. it was put a halt so i would say that was a way of solidarity from the agency itself from the federal agency but that's it that is it uh the housing is not the responsibility of federal agency it's the responsibility of the federal states themselves and that's where there was a lot of discrepancy because there is a lot of discrepancy when it comes to vulnerable groups among the states how do they tackle with vulnerability of refugees in general and especially lgbtiq yeah that is something i also came across quite a lot when i was doing my research on this topic that there was a lot of sort of collective quarantining in many like mass refugee shelters where just in one camp i think over 200 300 people were in isolation were not allowed to go out of the camp and also their contacts were not traced so in a sense like it didn't even make sense in a like epidemiological way <laughs> and in the end then it leads to all of the things that you said isolating someone within like a mass shelter leads to retraumatization at the same time it is also not safe like the the rates of infections are so much higher i read in a study from 2020 that in mass shelters it's 17% chance of infections which is like considerably higher than like if when you're not in a mass shelter because then you can just go home and you can isolate even when you like if you had a contact with someone that has been tested positive for covid-19 so yes in that sense there is a huge discrepancy i think yeah yeah it 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 was like that and and for the first few uh, months even all the independent 
counseling centers were also closed. Yeah. And everybody was offering online consultation and we being one of the federal agency and, and a couple of other who are working on, on a higher level, we were like, do you guys know that there is no Wi-Fi in the, in the mass shelters? It's like, it's good you are offering this. It's very good. But you offer things if somebody can receive them. Yeah. You can't just offer things and there is no consumer of that uh, offer. And it was, it was quite amusing for me, uh, being an outsider, that there were some uh, German-led organizations uh, like uh, from people who didn't have any migrant or any refugee background that they thought, okay, let's make an online angebot and everybody would come online counseling. It's like, no, no, uh, they won't. They can't. Yeah. It's not that they don't want to, it's that they just cannot. Mm. Yeah, it's, but, but that's, that also shows uh, there was solidarity, of course. Mm. They, they have shown that. But it was a misled kind of a solidarity mm. without any proper background research. Yeah. how it is going to be and i can imagine of course uh, it's the pandemic nobody thought about it even if you talk to your uh, parents or, or others who are older than you everywhere like, we were not expecting that not <laughs> in our lifetime like four weeks or like three weeks of like some kind of virus and then everything go back to normal <laughs> exactly exactly so uh, with with this much prolonged pandemic and isolations i would call them it's it's like uh, yeah nobody was ready i'm i'm not giving them the blame i'm not blaming them because nobody was prepared for this but at the same time it's like some things are very common sense based like yeah refugee centers don't have wi-fi yeah and this is very interesting to me because it because i also agree that it is hard to blame the the authorities in this moment because they were completely overwhelmed and exhausted and there were so many things that needed to be taken care of like immediately but what i think it does show very or what it elucidates is that already before the pandemic the situation for queer refugees or refugees in general was not very good especially in these mass shelters but but back then it was invisible because there was not so much media attention about it And now in the in the pandemic, it has remained the same, but has gotten worse. And now, because it is so much considerably worse with the starting conditions from before the pandemic, now it becomes visible. So now you can see the lack of before COVID. I think exactly. That, yeah, exactly. And we have been advocating for that since um, November 2017, since mm -hmm. the uh, start of the project that we need safe space and they were like hmm, yeah 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 maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we can think about it and now i am happy uh, um i'm not happy that there is a pandemic but i am happy that as a result of the pandemic the, mm. the authorities are now keen on listening as well and uh, not just us so many other areas as well for example uh, people who were abled in different ways, they also had to face a lot of issues. And just put now somebody who is a refugee, uh, differently abled, uh, need attention and need support. And all of a sudden, everything is 
shut down. In emergency, you can go to the hospital, but the hospitals were also overwhelmed with the number of cases. Like, like it was, it was. I, I would say, um, um, and I always say this now: we are going to come out of this mass traumatization after the side effects of the pandemic will subside, and then we will realize that we were not living a very good life. I don't want to go to pre-pandemic uh, time, but I would like to have a very good post-pandemic time. Mm. Uh, because uh, it has shown all the uh, negativities of the world that we live in, yeah. that we don't consider uh, the suffering of other people. Uh, and, and all those people, especially romanticizing in the first few weeks about pandemic and, and lockdown and all that, especially all the celebrities, I, I really wish to slap them. Yeah. yeah, I'm not somebody who would do any physical violence, but I was like, just give them two slaps to wake up. You living in your mansions and, and you have swimming pools, spas, and I don't know, whatever in your home. You have a neighborhood in your home full of services. And you are telling us people who live in small apartments and then those people who don't even have apartments were living in tents and in shelters. Yeah. Oh, just be happy about lockdown. No, I won't be. <laughs> just slow down, you know, like enjoy the, the prospect of self-reflection and introspective. And I was really traumatized myself because I was never faced with the traumas that I had. So yeah. I could see when people would call me, um, uh, especially uh, during the first lockdown when I was working from home. I didn't even want to work from home because for me, home was a place to enjoy and relax and just sit. Yeah. And I don't have any uh, big apartment where I can have an extra space just for office. So back to the people. So the people were calling me and telling me, we don't know, uh, what should we do? Where should we go? Yeah, And there were also cases, uh, especially when I'm also counseling a couple of trans women from uh, my uh, home country and adjacent countries who speak the same languages. Many of them became suicidal. Yeah. And I had to offer them private counselings just for them. With a distance of like two meters away, sit there uh sit outside somewhere sit in the in the in the porch area or somewhere else outside the office and just talk to them because yeah. it it became so intense and negatively impacting especially trans women yeah uh from different countries uh, and so i could i could deal only with a couple of countries i can't deal with every country i can't speak all the languages so I can imagine the other people offering other languages like French, like Spanish, like Russian. They might have been going through a lot of other issues as well. And when not the same, then at least the similar issue. And people became suicidal all of a sudden. Everybody was like, I don't know how it's going to be because I can't sit with myself and think about the, the, the incidents happened to me 
I can't reflect on that. That's why I was very much pissed off at the people romanticizing lockdowns because nobody as a refugee was prepared that they're going to sit alone without social workers, without anybody mm. to go to a safe space and talk to them and then get reflection from them on the traumatization, get some pieces of advice from them on the traumatization and how to deal with that trauma. Mm. Most of the trauma is dealt not with people uh, with with yourself alone you deal with trauma with other people making them part of your life mm. making activities part of your life and there were no activities no. <laughs> there were no people so that was something that everybody missed on uh, even authorities in the beginning they missed on that that people will be traumatized because everybody was keen on yeah we had need to save people from infections of course we need to but uh, there are bigger demons than infections in everyday life <laughs> yeah and this is something that i also came across in my in my research when we are speaking about solidarity and you mentioned it also now a few times is that the government did preach for solidarity a lot but it but it is interesting what kind of solidarity you know i think it is very much in this idea of you know we are all in the same boat This is a narrative that I found and, you know, everybody must do their part. And it, it is like, we all came into this together. We are all affected equally. So now, you know, if everyone would just do their little part, then it's completely manageable, doable. And we as a country, we as Germany will get out of this, which I think in theory can sound like a very noble idea and can sound like an approach or like a strategy that is very inclusive and promotes the well-being of all citizens but then if you look at things such as you mentioned if you look at people who are like multiply marginalized and who have different backgrounds and who are dealing with different issues already before the start it becomes very clear that we were not in the same boat to begin with so how can everyone do their part when you have been systematically disadvantaged from the start and then nobody is acknowledging this and acknowledging like this intersectionality that is present in German society because people have different amounts of privilege. Yeah, I, I, I uh, came across a very good when a couple of other people also gave me the, the example, we are all in the same boat. I was like, no, we are in Titanic. Yeah, exactly. We're not in the same boat. Yeah, some people and... are under, under the deck, some people are on the roof. Exactly. Some people had easy access to the safe boats and especially people like us who were under the deck, we didn't have that. <laughs> we were put in the last of the last. That's, I think that would be the best anal an analogy of somebody mm -hmm. wants to give when it comes to we are in the same boat. No, we are in Titanic, yeah. uh, not in the same boat. Uh, yeah, and, and then there is another thing um you need to know one thing when it comes to uh, refugees especially and uh, vulnerable groups among refugees it's very important that they have this sense of belonging yeah and a refugee center can never offer that yeah uh, because in germany i have come across some of the local um 
officers. Um, that is also something I come from an activist background, but I like to talk to officers. I'm not somebody who would not uh, talk to them. I'm like, let's come together, sit on the table, let's talk. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about? What's going on in your heads? I need to know. And they thought, and they may, maybe still many think that it's, it's better to put the same language groups in one camp, in one area and possibly in one of the building block. So they'd all speak the same language, same culture, same background, so they can live happily with one another. And I said, that's the biggest mistake you people do because LGBTIQ refugees, especially, and women who have suffered violence and children and people who are underprivileged coming from their countries, and privilege could be anything, it's not just money. It could be privilege or access to knowledge. It could be privilege or access to social and political uh, participation. So you can't put them in one box and tell them, oh, you all speak, uh, for example, Urdu. So all Urdu speaking people will live in one camp. You can't do that. But this is what has already been going on since so many months and years years and years that's how the logic was okay one yeah. language group one camp yeah. and now they realized no that was wrong <laughs> that was totally wrong that's how not you do it the same way women and children are usually kept in a different housing building the lgbtiq refugees should also have separate housing yeah. So in our part of the state, we have a couple of centers, bigger centers for vulnerable groups um, in general. And then there are also specific houses for LGBTIQ refugees, but they are not enough. Yeah. They can't handle all the population. Yeah, I think the need for safe spaces and the need for LGBTQIA plus refugees is really important and also something that I found when talking to two people because you can really clearly see a difference from those people that have been um, like queer refugees that have been living in LGBTQIA plus shelters and those who didn't and or those who first lived in mass shelters and then went to like a specific LGBTQIA plus shelter you can they all say the same thing it's like it was horrible before, you know, I'm discriminated. I have like existential fear. I'm like fearing my life because of my gender identity, because of my sexual identity and because of having no one to talk to. And also many social workers not being sensitized sufficiently. And then, you know, coming to the LGBTQIA plus shelter, you actually have the support that LGBTQIA plus refugees need. That is, you know, someone that has a training in what it means to have a refugee background and be LGBTQIA and also have the sense of belonging that you mentioned earlier, that you just have other people to relate to, that you have the sense of the chosen family, right? Because most LGBTQIA plus refugees have been on like fleeing alone most of the time sometimes also fleeing from the family and so this group membership this like in-group dynamic is so important i think to 
foster your sense of self-assurance and your sense of self-confidence and the feeling of yeah collectivity which I think can also be very beneficial in coping with trauma or coping with adversities and coping with any kind of hardship that you're currently going through or that you have been going through in the past. Yes, yes, that's that's what we need. That's what we always needed. And that's where the money didn't even flow <laughs> to make those um, uh, organizations have those specific practitioners who can who can develop such kind of projects yeah it was it it was uh, haphazard and even up up until today i would say it hasn't changed much mm. because still uh, we have been in lockdown since uh, december in the second lockdown in germany yeah. yes since december up until two three days back Yeah, uh, we were all in lockdown and we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything. The same was also uh, for the LGBTIQ refugees and asylum seekers and people living in uh, refugee centers. And you didn't know how to do things. We developed a couple of things. So at least I have the edge because I work for the federal project. So we can talk to the federal uh, Uh, actors and uh, stakeholders yeah. who work with LGBTIQ persons and vulnerable groups in general. So we have told them it's very important to have uh, Wi-Fi mm -hmm. in all the refugee centers. That yeah. is first and foremost. And secondly, it is very important to have places where people can go and talk to someone. Yeah. So if you provide them Wi-Fi and then provide them a counseling space where a person can go and sit and talk to even a counselor uh, on their issues in that private space yeah. within the asylum center, that can help. And maybe Germany might develop that in upcoming months because that would also be applicable even after pandemic. Yeah. Because there are also refugee centers which are far away from the main cities. Yeah. And people just can't leave the city and go somewhere. And another edge that we have, and we still have that, is that whatever the information material we develop, it's applicable for all Germany. Yeah. So because of the federalism, Uh, no one state can say, oh, it has been produced in NRA. We are not going to have it in uh, Baden-Württemberg or in Brandenburg or in Thuringen. They're all like, oh, okay, it's coming from the federal office. We <laughs> all have to accept it. So in that also, uh, the edge of using nine languages and promoting the area where people can self-identify themselves. Yeah, that's where I was coming. Uh, LGBTIQ refugees are usually invisible you can't see them yeah unless or until they report that they are lgbtiq persons they have to come out and then they can access all the rights that i have talked about in the beginning yeah the rights from the eu directives the rights that has been implemented within the german legislations and also from the eu court and then also from the german courts uh, but you have to come out And to come out, 
Yeah. You need to have a safe space. Yeah. So once again, we were we were talking about this coming out safe space for the last uh, three years, and then pandemic came, and all of a sudden they were like, "Yes, they yeah. were right." <laughs> that's a really good point, and maybe that's also a bit of a positive outlook on the future, because that's actually oh. one thing that I wanted to ask you as like a, one of the last questions of this interview that what is going to happen in the future or what is your how does your post covid world look like and i guess many people you it's easy to draw a very negative image of yeah now we see all the social inequalities and the discrepancies are even bigger but you could also see it in a more positive light and that's what i that's what i got from you that actually now all the work that people has have been doing for the last five, 10, 20, 30 years to fight for like social equality and social justice is finally being listened to a bit more because you can clearly see that if, if that would have been implemented before COVID, then many people would have had a much better or less worse <laughs> lockdown experience. So I wanted to ask you about this, if you have some idea of like, yeah, how, how does it look like for you? I have just two uh, reservations if I hope that doesn't happen if that would happen and then there uh, are going to be a lot of issues the first one is the European uh, migration pact mm -hmm. uh, which is going to close the European uh, borders and everybody who comes to take asylum would have to give their asylum interview asylum seeking interview in neighboring countries like Turkey, like Algeria, Libya, Lebanon, and outside of European boundaries, not inside European boundaries. And there is a lot of injustice going on within European boundaries. So who is going to take care of the injustice going to happen outside the European boundaries? I hope that doesn't uh, come into effect. Um, so if that doesn't come into effect, then I see that the government is at least the, the 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 government which is working now, they have also put forward a couple of things, uh, as suggestions for the upcoming governments too, that let's work on these issues. People need to take asylum. People want to take asylum. And Germany is one of the countries, also according to UNHCR, that has taken the most number of refugees within Europe collectively. And last year, the people through resettlement programs taken by Germany collectively are more than the rest of the European countries. Wow, yeah. Only Germany took more than 2,000 plus refugees through resettlement programs. So um, there is also a positive thing to talk about, that things are going in the right direction, uh, slowly but gradually. Then there is another issue that uh, I think we need to tackle is issue of uh, discrimination because LGBTIQ refugees and asylum seekers in general, they feel discriminated at so many places in, in their life from so many people and stakeholders. May it be their own community, um, may it be the uh, German white community, may it be the workers, who are also human beings taught not to be discriminated towards other people, but they can be. 
then there are also issues of uh, uh, conflating homosexuality with uh, pedophilia that is so common even up until today male homosexuality is many times confused with pedophilia that need to stop and they need to work on it and last but not least i see a post covid especially germany i can't talk about other european countries a place where at least the federal agency is ready to listen to lgbtiq refugees is ready to provide the scene makers and interviewers who are sensitized on the issue is ready to provide people there is also a new uh, achievement for us that the uh, language control department of bumf the federal agency they are also in contact with us now because uh, most of the cases are rejected because somebody interpreted them wrongly mm. so that is also going to change hopefully let's see how they're going to implement on that and another positive step that i have seen is the project of the family ministry on uh, vulnerable groups and their protection within the refugee centers all over germany so it's a federal ministry but they are how should i say they implement their projects to different organizations working in different federal states mm-hmm. uh, that's what i hope is going to happen and that's what i hope that the people are going to say the word lesbian gay pansexual bisexual interpersons transpersons queer persons and can take those words into their mouth because this is something that i am always doing in my sensitization workshops say these words yeah break the taboo break the stigma yeah yes say it uh, you yeah. can say penis you can say vagina you can say lesbian you can say gay please yeah. say it yeah and uh, that's that's very hard because uh, even though we live in first world countries saying these words is still like oh, that's very private <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. private thing no in case of a refugee it's not yeah yeah that is something that determines if they are going to live or not yeah and we have seen uh the last thing that i am going to say uh that is very notable i think we need to talk about it in the interview if you're going to publish it the number of cases coming from uh iran increased many folds mm. so last year we had more than uh, 400 30 people contacting us from all over the world and out of those uh, more than 120 were only from iran wow yeah just one country and we unfortunately cannot do anything while sitting in that country that's why i don't want my uh, european migration pact to come into force uh, we have seen two weeks ago uh, ali raza munferid was uh, uh, brutally murdered yeah. and beheaded by his own family for being gay because he wanted to leave the country go to turkey and be with his boyfriend he was just 20 year old yeah young child yeah. a very young person who has not even still seen the blessings of the youth yeah i haven't enjoyed the life itself just imagine 
Ali Reza Munfred giving an interview in Turkey where the Iranian family can hunt him even in Turkey because the borders are open. Mm. You can't make European migration pacts with countries where people do not have the same rights, especially vulnerable groups like LGBTIQ, that they could be interviewed in that country. Who is going to be responsible for the data protection of those people that that data will not be leaked, that those persons will not be handed back to Saudi Arabian consulate Mm. or Iranian consulate? or Pakistani consulate, or Libyan, or I don't know, Guana, or, or, or Chad, or Somalia, I don't, or Russian consulate, mm. that they will be given back to them. Yeah. And, and this is something where I think we need to show solidarity as well, and not just solidarity in terms of giving lip service, like literally starting petitions, yeah. contacting the European uh, uh, EU parliamentarians telling them that it is going to be a human rights disaster if they're going to make the European Migration Pact come into force. Yeah. Yeah, and strong, strong statement in the end and also very important for, I think, for people that are listening to to read up upon it and to not be quiet about this issue just because it doesn't affect you personally. And well, I would have so many more questions and interesting things to talk about. I think we need to stop this interview at this point. Yeah, because we have like a certain time limit. But thank you so much for offering all your insights and your experiences from your work and from um, from the community of queer refugees that you have been advocating for and representing in many cases. And yeah, I think you're doing very incredible work and I think it's very yeah admirable and thank you so much for taking the time You're to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you for uh, making this happen and uh, letting the voice and the shout out out in the world. Mm-hmm.